0: So here's what's up. October is always a busy month for me as a university student, so I have known for a couple months now that I would need to take some time off from working on the red list right around this time of year. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an episode this month. Instead, I just opted to do something a little different, both in structure and in content. This episode will be a rebroadcast of an interview I did a couple years back for the Ivory Tower, another show I used to do for CJSW. This interview is about one of my favorite topics, coyotes. More specifically, about urban coyotes and how people think about them and how they act towards them. Now, coyotes aren't exactly an at-risk species but it's not like we treat them like honored guests when we see them in our cities. They're widely reviled, portrayed by the media as senseless killing machines, and often hunted down for doing little more than showing their faces around our back alleys. They exist in a hostile gray area, one that many urban species seem to find themselves in. One that they really don't need to be in in the first place. So, without further ado, I present my interview with Dr. Shelley Alexander from the University of Calgary's Geography Department, about her research into how we talk about coyotes, and what these animals are really like. Enjoy. So I think most people probably know what geography is, and if they don't, I'm sure they can Google it. But more people might be unfamiliar with the concept of animal geography. So can you please explain what that is?
1: Okay, well, animal geography is it's an older discipline that's really re-emerging and I suppose becoming more popular again. And it's really about the relationship between humans and animals in space and in time and our effects on animals particularly in areas where humans are disturbing landscape. But it all also extends into concepts like ethics and welfare and how we view certain animals, which animals we think belong with us and don't belong with us, and ideas of, and specifically with the animals I study, like coyotes, whether or not they belong in urban centers and what's natural and what's not. So it, it kind of extends into that, that realm of concern for ethics and, and welfare for animals as well.
0: Okay, so speaking of coyotes, you have studied the coyotes in Calgary for the past few years and, you know, done a lot of work with them. What kind of presence do coyotes have in the city?
1: Coyotes are present in the city of Calgary, and, and mostly because we have a lot of green spaces maintained within the city of Calgary. So as we develop the city and develop the residential areas, we tend to like to keep those some of those green spaces. So where coyotes were living before, uh, we maybe displace them a little bit. Or they hang on to those little fragments of habitat. And then they center most of their activity out of those, like, for example, Nose Hill. But then they move into the surrounding neighborhoods and be opportunistic about what they eat within those neighborhoods.
0: Coyotes, unfortunately, have a pretty bad reputation. And you have done a study investigating this bad reputation. Or you worked on a study. uh, Specifically, news articles from the past few decades. How did you do the study, and what did you find?
1: So that was another study, and that was actually something I did in collaboration with another professor, but I, I did all of the reading of the, the newspaper articles for this. And this is using an approach called media content analysis. And so what you do is you take all of, you, you go to the library, archives, search all of the newspaper articles uh, for a specific topic that you're interested in, and gather all those together, and you go through multiple reads of those articles to allow the issues to emerge. So it's based in concepts like grounded theory, where we allow the documents themselves to tell us something about what's important or not to people about this subject matter, coyotes. And so that's why I say there were multiple facets to this, and that one in particular was for Canada-wide articles. And it can be very detailed and it's a bit exhausting that kind of work because you start out with thousands and thousands of articles. You have to screen them down to the ones that are absolutely specific to your topic. Like for example, at the beginning I had 30,000 articles if I searched coyotes and conflict, but some of that was because you end up getting things like hockey teams involved. So then you have to go through and manually read all the titles and search those and so then you go through every article, and you, I had, I think, about 500 articles at the end, and read those and start to identify the themes that emerge. So, you know, one was things like emotional reaction to coyotes. How, what, did pe- what were people recorded to have said about their experience with coyotes? And other things that emerged were the types of words that the media used. How often did they use words, and what, did they, what meaning did they give to those words? So, for example, attack, it seems like a fairly straightforward word and definition, but if you look at what it was used to describe, it was used to describe anything from, you know, a coyote running through a backyard or a coyote running down a back alley and to actually having physical contact and biting a person. So al- along with looking at how frequently were people actually attacked, meaning bitten by a coyote, versus how many things were sightings, I looked at that kind of information, but also information like, when those events happened, like when a specific when a dog was attacked by a coyote or bitten by a coyote, what were the preceding conditions? So often when someone's interviewed, they'll say, well, I was just walking my dog and it ran off into the woods and then the coyote attacked it. And so I'm able to get at other information like, okay, the dog was off leash. If that information emerges at document 200, then you go back to the beginning and you say, okay, I, I didn't think about that. Maybe I better reevaluate all of these documents to see how often someone said dog was on leash or off leash. So you start to get some really interesting information emerge from that. And it was really outside of my normal research realm because I'd done mostly ecology work. So it was extending outside into new territory and really exciting because of that, because you're, you're learning as you, as you do the research.
0: I was surprised that coyote attacks don't actually happen very often, probably not as often as most people think. Do you think the media or how these things are reported plays a part in why people may have that misconception?
1: The media chooses words like attack, which inflame people's perception of what's happening. I mean, immediately when you think attack, you think of something vicious that's occurred. They use words like vicious and marauding and murderers and things like that to describe the behavior of coyotes. And so, yes, those, those things, there is... There are other research studies that actually look at the effect of the media's selection of those words on whether people perceive they are at risk or not. Now, I didn't study that. That's existing research that other people have looked at. So it has been shown that the media's choice of language and their stereotypical approach to describing coyotes will change people's perception of whether or not they're at risk. And so one of the things I was trying to do with that study was say, okay, well, how many times are we actually having something happen in Canada that we would consider to be uh, an attack? And I defined attack as someone being bitten or scratched by a coyote. And so it was really low by the end. And and you know there's there's very little um, discrepancy over the number of times that something's reported in the media and, and how many times it actually happens if a person was bitten because they're more likely to go to media than anybody else. So on average, it was about three times, three times per year a person was bitten or scratched by a coyote. In all of Canada? In, in all of Canada over a 12-year period. So I looked at 12 years of media articles, which is really low, right? Considering that the, the responses that are revealed in the media are things like, I'm afraid to let my children out. I don't want to walk in the park anymore. They're, they're vicious, they kill everything, just a lot of fear, a fear of being infected with diseases. And then also the reaction that we have on a management level to that is is to, for every coyote that was reported to have attacked somebody, there was at least one coyote shot. Whether it was the coyote that actually did the biting, you know, we're never 100% sure of that. But even to the magnitude of 70,000 coyotes being taken on government bounty in Saskatchewan in one year in response to fear of attacks on on children. Other than threatening gestures, there were no other preceding conditions for that cull. although there were, you know, multiple reports of, of livestock depredation. But the response is enormous compared to the actual rate of something happening.
0: You mentioned this earlier, but you helped to work on another study that did analyze the diet of coyotes in different parts of Calgary. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how you did that study and, or how you helped to do that study and what you found?
1: I had several students come through the project, two of who focused on diet in different years. The first was Victoria Lukasik's work. And so when we published that, that data looked strictly at coyote diet in the city of Calgary. And that was done by collecting fecal samples, or scat. Um, throughout the city of Calgary. And my background is really in field ecology. So my contributions are around being a supervisor in project design and field training on on methods of how to do scat identification or track, etc. But Victoria needs to be credited for having done all of the scat dissection work, which is a big job. And so what happens is you collect the scat, freeze it. It has to be sterilized in some way because canid scat uh, of any kind can contain parasites that are problematic for people, one of which can be lethal. So you really have to make sure it's handled properly. So it's autoclaved or it's frozen to uh, in a very deep freeze for certain periods of time to kill those parasites. And then you go into a lab setting and the scat is just basically broken apart into, you know, hair and bone. And, and then you can use compound microscopes to look at the hair that's in there and then you can identify which species the coyote consumed. Now, coyotes are generalists, so there's all sorts of things show up in there, uh, including vegetation, as well as mostly small mammals. But we were really trying to key in on things like garbage. And one of the real reasons for having started this work was that there had been attacks on children in 2005 in the city of Calgary. So there was a practical reason for starting this work. Secondly to that, we wanted to push into new territory, which was Can we link the amount of garbage in diet to where the attacks in Calgary are happening? What we got was the data from the City of Calgary 311 reports and and then used GIS to look at the relationship between where certain foods were showing up across on a big map of the City of Calgary, and was there a, a relationship between where we saw the certain food types and the amount of garbage and that, to where the conflict zones were occurring, and then also looking at what percentage of the diet was actually made up of what uh, species.
0: I was shocked to see how much of their diet was plants and yeah. crab apples in particular. They yeah. really like crab apples. Yeah. Do you think that knowing this in general might help people's image of coyotes? Because I think a lot of people think of them as just these bloodthirsty monsters. Strictly
1: carnivores, strictly carnivorous, um, as if most carnivores would, would attack people anyway. But. Yeah, I, I, I suppose understanding them as a broader generalist species like that. One of the things I try to do to help people understand God, the potential threat or the the misconception of the threat of coyotes is basically their size. They're only about 35 pounds, and so really they can be scared off very very easily, and they are a high-flight animal. But the crabapple stuff was incredibly cool because it showed up in the diet, and, and I love this story because it shows how, Sometimes our science, we choose particularly remote ways to sample animals. For example, we use radio collars or whatever, and we think that that's actually giving us a big picture. We interpret that somehow, but this is a great example of where certain methods fail. (laughs) Crab apples were showing up in the diet in large amounts during the dispersal time, and one of the recommendations that, that we came up with after we finished, we drew up a recommendation for the city of Calgary, and it was about. You know, people have to clean up after their fallen fruit and stuff because they're probably scavenging off the ground. But a couple of years later, I had started the Living with Coyotes website, and people were sending me photos of coyotes. One day, somebody, you know, kind of tap-tap on my email and says, I think you want to see this. And it was a picture of a coyote having climbed about 18 feet or 15 feet up into the air in a crabapple tree (laughs) in the deep of winter. And it was, pick, was standing like a ballerina, they're very delicate, so standing like a ballerina in the tree and reaching out, they had a video of it, reaching out and picking crab apples and then just chewing them and then falling out of the tree. So <laughs> we, we kind of, at that moment, we were like, wow, you know, one, I love this about coyotes, they're incredible tricksters, but two, mm, well, we made a management recommendation that we thought would solve the problem, but now we have arboreal coyotes so clearly. There's another thing going on that we missed.
0: That's incredible. That's yeah. that's so cool. But unfortunately, coyotes also eat a lot of trash, which is also a very big problem. Yeah. Do you think that this does play a really big role in coyotes becoming more aggressive or more inclined to attack?
1: Yeah. You know, that's not that's not new information out of my work, but certainly we redid the diet study again 3 years later and we again found about 14% of the scat containing human sources of food. And in most cities in North America, where we have over 12% of diet made up of garbage. You have coyote conflict issues. But it, that comes from a bigger body of literature around uh, animal habituation to people and, and, and versus animal aggression. And, you know, we know in most places, if you were to live in Banff um, or any other mountain town, you'd know you wouldn't leave bird seed out and you wouldn't leave your garbage out because there's bigger animals that are going to eat that, that have a a higher propensity by accident to injure you. And I say by accident rather than, you know, if they go to bite you, it's a lot more likely you're going to die if a bear bites you than a coyote does. So there is a direct relationship between how often an animal spends time eating garbage or hanging around back alleys and it's Potential to become food conditioned linked with habituation. So, food conditioned is I don't go and seek my own food sources anymore because there's this garbage source over here, or there's somebody's left lots of bird seed, or there's a ready source of free ranging cats, or something like that. I'm not going to go work harder anymore because I can just get this. Ah, but I spend a lot of time around people. They don't seem to cause me much issue anymore. Speaking from the perspective of the coyote here. So not only are they benign and I can probably scare them away, but their back alleys have my food source. So then the people then may try to scare a coyote away and if it's lost its fear, it's likely to protect the resource and go after them. That's most of the conflict that we see is about that kind of scenario. It's the defense or 100% of the cases that we found in Canada when a human was bitten. Every one of the cases that we looked at of the 26 cases across 12 years if you read long enough in the media articles you found somebody would say oh yeah we cut the stomach open in the coyote and it had human food in it ah yes there was a report 4 years before that a neighbor had been regularly feeding the coyote or you know there was just always some evidence of food conditioning so the link is very clear that if if you want to keep that kind of thing from evolving you need to take responsibility for the human end of that.
0: I know that you've worked on several different programs in the city, including the Living with Coyotes website. What are these programs aiming to do?
1: That's education, really. And, you know, the city of Calgary does the same kind of thing. It's really about education, and it, it's about not just, know, just not knowing, right, and, and not understanding the consequences of, of our actions and it's not that every coyote that eats garbage is going to turn into a, uh, something that bites people but it's that there is always a direct link between coyotes that do bite and garbage and so the only way to solve that issue is to attack the human end of it right or, i mean the the way we've dealt with it is to kill coyotes but the next coyote will just wander into that neighborhood it will become habituated and the problem starts all over again so education is really The start of that tolerance is the second part of understanding that these animals aren't invading our cities. We've actually built on top of coyote habitat, and they are eking out a living, hanging on to the remnants of habitat that's left. And so, it's deciding what we are willing to tolerate as a society. If we want to live on a ravine, is it really okay to decide which species should and shouldn't live there? And why do we feel that way? Why? Why do some people? absolutely not want to have coyotes or or magpies living in their environment. And is that the correct choice to make or not, right? We have to empower people to know what the science shows about how often do people get attacked? What's the source of attack? And then how do we manage this stuff before a problem arises?
0: There are people that would say that it isn't worth it to try living with coyotes. They would think it better to just like you said, just shoot coyotes, that it isn't worth it to try to go through all this effort to protect these animals or to learn to coexist with them. What would you say to these people?
1: Well, a couple of of things. One is that the, the majority of these of carnivores, the top carnivores, the science is extremely definitive on this stuff. They, they have an important ecological role to play. And so into maintaining the balance and the diversity of species, many of which are important to people, many of which we don't even know whether how important they are yet, these are important in that sort of system. Of maintaining that. We know that in cities, and actually with coyotes in particular, that they are important for maintaining biodiversity. So certain systems, if you pull the predator out, are going to collapse or go into complete disarray like the Yellowstone situation, which is another interview in itself. But, you know, you you need them there to maintain the system. We have to start thinking about this a little bit differently and that we are also top top of the system, right? There may be a time lag, but what we are doing to this system, we are doing to ourselves. And so we will make ourselves immune from these effects for a certain period of time. It's, it's difficult for people, I think, to think on that long-term scale. The third point that I think I would make is the, the diversity is, is incredible. Why not maintain it? Why not try to coexist? I think if you spend time with animals, you, you, you just you know there's a beauty to them. There's a beauty to looking at them. There's a value to being able to have those experiences. And so why not provide that for us and for future generations?
0: To end with some practical advice, what should a person do if they see a coyote?
1: It's it's basic respect, right? It's like walking into somebody's backyard that has a dog. You kind of you have to be respectful for the space that that particular animal knows and the potential that you've transgressed their zone. And so the the best thing is to give them clear, you know, wide space, to give them space and to move away, not run away, but to, you know, slowly move yourself out of that area. Now, if the coyote is coming up to you, you need to move yourself away from that coyote. But again, you don't run. But I'm I'm hesitating on this because there's two two couple of reasons why this might happen and different ways to act. If a coyote is acting aggressively towards you, then you can yell at it and things that are working is being very assertive, throwing your arms up in the air and moving away. But most of what people are encountering right now is that the animal, the coyote will come in and follow them and push them and push them or be curious, you know. And so you can try those things, but it may be they're trying to herd you out of a place that they don't want you. And so in that case, you just have to stay calm and get away. But if they persist to the point that you feel threatened, you can yell at them and, and be forceful. By that, I mean yelling and putting your arms up in the air or throwing stones at her or something. But that situation does not happen a lot. Uh, and I would say the majority of events that occur, it's just get yourself slowly and calmly out of that conflict. But, you know, I think the best advice for people is know that you are living in coyote habitat and you are sharing that. We are sharing that place together. And so be aware that they're there and watch for the signs that they're there. Have your dog on a leash. And in, in, even in off-leash zones in certain times of year, dogs should be on leash. And the dog owners out there might say, well, she, you know, you can go ahead and say that, but I like to ro- let my dogs run loose. Well, I have three dogs, and so and I, I love when they can run loose, but where I know there's coyotes or a potential coyote encounter happening, I have them on leash because it's my job to keep them safe. I think, like I say, the best advice is be aware, be vigilant, know your environment, and take the necessary steps so that the conflict doesn't arise in the first place.
0: My name is Sean Willett, and this has been a very different episode of The Red List. We will be back to our regular programming next month, but in the meantime, I encourage you to start thinking a bit more about the animals that live in our cities. They are just as much a part of nature as any other animal, and they deserve a lot more respect than they get. Even if they aren't actually on The Red List. The show is brought to you by CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. CJSW just got finished its funding drive and I would like to give a special thanks to Keenan, Melanie, Barbara, Dorothy, and Zeph, who all pledged during my on-air show. Thank you guys. It really does mean a lot. The Red List theme song is Deuteronomy 210 by the Mountain Goats, and the rest of the music is provided by Jazzar and Poddington Bear. You can find the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CJSW.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at RedListCJSW. So, until next time, thank you for listening, and keep watching.